Amen. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. And even though Scott already uh, said this, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there this morning. We're going to begin a new series on Sunday morning in the book of Hebrews. So if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 13, we're actually going to begin at the end. We're going to take a tour through the book of Hebrews this morning, and then beginning next week, we'll start taking passages and looking at individual passages throughout the book of Hebrews that really gives us the, the message of what the author of Hebrews was divinely inspired to write to us as followers of Jesus Christ. While you're finding Hebrews chapter 13, I just want to say, wow, what a great turnout on Wednesday night. I should have thrown down a challenge a long time ago. Um, but it was a great turnout, and, and many of you maybe had wanted to come out Wednesday night and for whatever reason couldn't make it. Please always know that you can come out any Sunday or Wednesday. Each message that I do can stand alone on its own. So you don't have to feel like, well, I missed the first one, so I probably shouldn't. No, don't feel that way at all. You come as much as you possibly can. We would love to have you on Wednesday night as we study this great book of Habakkuk, looking at how to develop into our lives that high-altitude faith where we can trust God even more than we are right now. So in Hebrews, the reason I wanted you to turn, first of all, to Hebrews 13 is, if you had to title the book of Hebrews, and many of you know Hebrews is my favorite book, if I had to land on one book of the Bible, though all 66 are awesome, if I had to land on one book of the Bible that is sort of my personal favorite over the years, it would be the book of Hebrews. And I think through this study, you'll understand maybe why that is with me, why it resonates so much with me. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, as the author gets to the end of this letter, he says to his brothers and sisters in Christ, he said, I hope that you will bear with my word of exhortation. What he's saying is, I hope you will keep listening to me, even though it may be uncomfortable at times, because this message from God through me is going to make you stronger. And that's an important thing to start off with. Now, he obviously ends his letter. I love the fact, too, that he says that this is a short letter. Most of us would go, 13 chapters? That's short? That's like a preacher saying, yeah, I only preached for an hour. You know, no big deal. That was a short message. But that was sort of his mindset. I've written to you briefly, he says there in chapter 13, verse 22. But he says, bear with my word or message of exhortation. So I think that's important for us to start out with. God wants us to keep listening throughout this letter and hear His voice through these words, though at times it may make us uncomfortable because these are things that we need to hear, maybe not what we always want to hear. They might bring some conviction. They might bring some challenge to our life. But the author says it will make you and I stronger in our walk with God. So as we go through now this morning, again, this will be the only time we do this. I want to take a quick tour through the book of Hebrews. If I had to put a title to the book of Hebrews, it would be the book of better things. The book of better things. The word better is used in the book of Hebrews more than any other book of the Bible. 
In fact, 12 of the 19 times this word is used in the New Testament, it's used in this book, the book of Hebrews. That's why I call it the book of better things. And you'll notice in chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, the author here is exhorting his readers to keep on making progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ. In other words, he wants them to progress beyond being baby Christians. So many Christians feel like, well, once I'm saved and I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, man, that's it. That's the end. And the author here is saying, no, no, no. Our salvation in Christ is just the beginning, if you will. Our, our acceptance of Christ is just the beginning. It's not the end. God expects us to make progress beyond being a baby Christian and having an elementary understanding of sort of the ABCs of the Christian life. In fact, he says, it's up to all of us to move on to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1. That's a key phrase in this book. Moving on to maturity. Why? Because the author is going to tell us that if you and I choose not to keep making progress, to not move on to maturity, to not keep walking with Christ and going further than where we are right now or where we were when we accepted Christ, that we will never experience the best that God has for us. That better life, if you will. Because all of that is wrapped up in us realizing that if we're not moving forward after we accept Christ, we will automatically move backwards. There's no such thing as remaining static or stationary in our spiritual lives. We're either drawing closer to God or we're regressing and moving further away from God. And the reason that this is such uh, where the author lands in this letter is because the people that he was writing to and why this is called the book of Hebrews is he's writing here to first century Jewish Christians who had left, you know, the temple and the sacrifices and they had embraced Jesus Christ. And they said, I, I believe, Jesus, that you are my Messiah. And if you've ever been around a Jew who finally the light bulb goes on and they believe that Jesus is their Messiah, man, no one is more on fire for God than a Jewish Christian who understands that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. But as they began to get persecuted and as life began to get really hard for them because they were forsaken by many of their family members and friends, they lost their businesses because no one would support them. I mean, they went through a lot to embrace Jesus Christ. It would be like maybe people in the Middle East today in that area of the world saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. My goodness, everybody would have turned their backs on them and they would have had to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. Well, that's where these folks were. And they had gotten to a place after so long that they're like, this is too hard. This is too difficult. We're giving up. We're, throw, we're stopping. We're not going any further with Jesus. We're going to just stop right here. And the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you can't do that. Don't you understand that if you stop now, if you give up, if you quit, if you say, this is it, this is as far as I go, that you're going to start going backwards. And all that God has for you out here, that experience of what's best and the better life that He has for us, you will never experience in this life. And you'll get to heaven one day and then you will realize when God unfolds it for you all that you missed because you did not continue to walk with God every day and keep moving on to maturity. 
It would be like for us, and I'm just going to use as a maybe bad illustration, but one that comes to mind. It'd be like walking into Disneyland, and all you ever experienced in Disneyland was Main Street. That's as far as you ever went. Even though obviously it, it splinters out into all these different directions and there's all these different, you know, worlds and lands and stuff that you can explore. That's the way many Christians live their lives. They never move beyond Main Street. They get saved. They learn a little bit of the basics of the Christian life. And then like these first century Jews, they develop this mindset. That's as far as I'm going. That's it. I'm done. And there's so much more out there for them. And then they wonder, why am, why am I feeling like I'm not fulfilled and satisfied? And, and the Bible talks about this abundant life that Jesus came to bring. And I don't feel like I'm experiencing it. And the author is saying, because you're not willing to keep moving and making progress and doing the things and making the choices and decisions that you and I need to do in order to experience God's best for us. Now, after he warns them of that in the first eight verses of chapter six, notice what he says in verse nine. But in your case, he's sort of showing some confidence in these folks that he's writing to. He says, but in your case, dear friends, even though we could speak like this, we are confident of better things relating to salvation. We are confident that you're not going to sit down, that you're not going to slow down, that you're not going to stop. But you're going to keep on moving to maturity and you're going to begin to experience the better things that accompany our salvation. Because God has so many wonderful things, but they can only be experienced if we keep on moving on to maturity. Now today, what I'd like to share with you briefly are all the instances throughout the book of Hebrews where this word better is used to remind us of the blessings of this better best existence that we can have in God, not just by coming to know him as our savior, but by experiencing him fully in our life and opening our, up our life to all that God has for us. Because here's really, again, what the author of Hebrews is teaching all of us today. He's saying, whatever God is offering you in your life is always better than what anybody else could offer you. What you've dreamed up yourself or what the world can offer you. It's always better. Anything that God offers us is always better than anything else that we could take a hold of. That's where he's coming from. So he's saying to his readers, and he's also obviously saying to us some 2,000 years later, why aren't we choosing God's best over all these other things that we are getting involved in with and occupying our time and energy and life with here on earth because maybe we're missing out on God's best. Maybe we're not experiencing the better things that God has for us because we're not willing to choose God's best. Well, let me share with you again for just a few moments some of these better things. If you go over to chapter 7, we're going to move through here quickly this morning. In chapter 7, verse 19, he talks about the fact that as Christians now, through Christ, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. Are you experiencing that better hope today? That confidence, that absolute assurance, that certainty that comes with knowing Christ and therefore drawing nearer and nearer to God through that hope that you and I have. We have that hope. Are we living out that hope? And there's nothing in the world, nothing no one else can give us that can give us hope like God can. 
Only God can give us that absolute certainty, that absolute assurance that we can live by, that absolute confidence to be able to live by, because hope in the Bible is not a concept. Hope is embodied in a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And when we have Jesus Christ in our life, we have all the hope we will ever need. A better hope. Then notice down in verse 22. He talks about the fact that through Jesus, we also have been established in a relationship with God through a better covenant. Why? Why do we have such a security that the Bible says Jesus Christ has become the guarantee of a better covenant? How can I live with such security in my life? Because the old covenant, the Old Testament, if you will, was temporary and incomplete. The New Testament, the new covenant that now God has made with us through the blood and sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, is absolutely eternal. It's not temporary. And it's perfect. It is complete. Notice over in chapter 8, verse 6, the author says that Jesus now has obtained a superior ministry. In the Net Bible, that word is translated superior, but it's exactly the same word as better that's translated everywhere else in the Net Bible uh, in the book of Hebrews. Better. Jesus Christ has a better or superior ministry. Why? Why does he have a superior ministry over all the Old Testament priests? Because their place of ministry was on earth. And notice up in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Jesus ascended. He's now the high priest who has sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is the minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle of the Lord. Not that man set up, but that God set up a heavenly sanctuary. In fact, the words heavenly sanctuary appear in verse 5, if you see there of Hebrews chapter 8. See, his ministry is better. It's far superior and greater to anything on earth because he's in heaven. And we now, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, we have a high priest who now lives in heaven. Oh my goodness, what, what better could we have than that? That we have a helper who literally lives in heaven and is at the right hand of God. Then he also says in verse 6, we also, this covenant that we have has been established upon better promises. Are we living out those promises? Do we know those promises? Are we absorbing those promises from the Word of God? Are we meditating on those promises that God has given us? Are we memorizing those promises from God's Word? Again, are we building our lives on those promises? Because they're far better promises than anything anyone else could promise us. Because when God promises something, He obviously follows through with it. His promises are always true, reliable, faithful, firm, trustworthy. Those are the promises of God. And here, particularly at the end of chapter 8, he's telling us that part of the promises that God has given us through this new covenant is that this relationship with him would be internal and intimate, much more so than it could have ever been in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. That's why he says there in verse uh, 10, my Bible keeps flipping here. He said, I'll put my laws in their minds. I will inscribe them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's a new promise. That was something that could never have happened under the old covenant, but it does now on the new covenant. So intimate, so relational, you see. And so that's one of the great promises. Another one here in verse 12 is that God not only says he'll grant us forgiveness under this old covenant, he says, I will not even remember your sins any longer. Wow. 
As the Bible says, I'll cast him in the depths of the sea. Now, it's not obviously that God can physically forget something. He just chooses never to be mindful of it. Think about that. God says in this new covenant, here's one of my better promises. I'm not only going to forgive you of all your sin, I'm not going to ever bring it up. I'm not going to throw whatever up in your face. I'm not going to remember it anymore. Even though I could choose to be mindful of every little thing you've ever done wrong, I'm not going to do it. What a great promise from God. Then if you go over to chapter 9, notice it says there in verse 23 that this relationship has also been established through a better sacrifice. Instead of all the Old Testament sacrifices that were many and often over and over and over again, Jesus came once and he died once and he laid down his life once and for all. That's why it says there in verse 25, Jesus did not enter to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters, but he only entered once and for all. All. That's what it says in verse 28. So also Christ, after he was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring the fulfillment of our salvation. Better things. Notice over in chapter 10, verse 34, the author talks about a better and lasting possession that you and I have. What's he talking about there? He's talking about what awaits us in glory in heaven. That's why Jesus said, you know the better possession you and I have through Christ? Well, we have the possibility of laying up treasure in heaven. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 6, 20. Then Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for each of you. Jesus Christ is designing a personal residence for us in glory. And he says, if I'm going to prepare that place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 1 through 3. And then Peter talks about the fact that you and I have been given through Christ an inheritance. An inheritance in 1 Peter 1, 4 that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is reserved in heaven for you. What a better possession could we have than that? Because everything we possess here on earth, one day, first of all, we can't take it with us. It's going to get burned up or wear out or whatever. So if we're not investing in eternal things, then what are we going to show for our life here on earth when we get there? And that's why Jesus encourages his followers. You have the opportunity to have a better possession. You can invest in eternal things. Why don't we do that? Then notice over in chapter 11, verse 35, he references a better... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Chapter 11, verse 16, he references a better land. He's talking there specifically about Abraham and all of that. And he says, look, these folks who first started to follow God, if if they would have been focused on the earthly, temporal things, they might have went back to their homeland in verse 15. But he says in verse 16, but as it is, they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Heaven. What could be better than heaven? And many of us have loved ones and friends and family members who've died and they're in heaven. And they're just waiting for us to get there. And heaven is this wonderful place that one day you and I are going to be there as well. What could be better than that? And then in chapter 11, verse 35, he talks about this better life. 
that God has given to us. He says, look, many of the early Christians, especially, and even many people today who are Christians in other places in the world, they get martyred for their faith. They lose their lives. Their lives are cut short. But notice he says here in verse 35, but others were tortured, not accepting release to obtain resurrection to a better life. What makes that life better? The fact that unlike life on earth can be cut short, this life, this existence will never be cut short in heaven. It will be eternal. It, would, it will be forever. It will be unending. Start to think about that and your brain starts to hurt, right? And yet, what a wonderful thing to think about. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, will never die. I mean, death for us is just simply transferring our existence from earth to heaven. To be absent from the body, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be present with the Lord. I mean, and then once we get there, nothing's ever cut short. Nothing ever ends. We just go on forever and ever. All we know on earth is that things end. Every, it always ends. Something ends. There's always an end to something. And he's saying, do you want to know one of the better things God has given us? Is that we have an existence in this great place called heaven, and it's never going to end. What could be better than that? Well, one more thing. Over in chapter 12, in verse 24, the author says this. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks something better than Abel does. Now, he's not talking, I think, about Abel's actual blood. I think he's talking about the sacrifices that Abel brought, which, by the way, they were acceptable to God, unlike Cain's sacrifices. But he's saying here, he's contrasting, again, the blood of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament compared to Jesus's blood. And he's saying the blood of Jesus Christ is so much more powerful does so much more for us under the blood of Jesus than any Old Testament sacrifice could do. Let me show you this from the book of Hebrews itself. If you go back just a couple chapters to chapter 9, and look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9. The author says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled, consecrated them and provided ritual purity, here's key, how much more... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? Peter even said, you and I were redeemed or set free, not with corruptible things like silver and gold from our old manner of life, but we were set free and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot and without blemish. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14. The better thing. See, the author is saying to his readers, you can't stop. You can't quit. Yeah, it may be hard. It may be difficult, but you don't understand. If you don't keep moving forward, if you don't keep progressing, if you don't experience spiritual growth and maturity in your life, you're going to start sliding backwards and you will never experience the best that God has for you. You will never experience the better things that are all wrapped up in our salvation. In a sense, it's like, yes, we got saved, but we only opened up a portion of this wonderful package, this gift we call salvation. We've only entered into the 
main street portion of our salvation. And there's all these other wonderful things yet for you and I as a church and as individuals to experience. So in closing this morning, I want us to focus on a verse that actually is not found in the book of Hebrews, but it certainly goes along with what we're talking about this morning. And that's in the book of Philippians chapter 1. If you would turn there with me for just a few moments this morning as we wrap up our thoughts in this, from this first message out of the book of Hebrews. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, one of the things I love about Paul is that, you know, many times as Christians, when we start sharing prayer requests and we pray for one another, it always ends up being just about physical things. And not that there's anything wrong with praying for physical needs. That's absolutely biblical. But many times as Christians, that's sort of all we pray about for each other. And what I love about Paul is Paul teaches us in the New Testament not just to pray about physical things, but to pray for each other spiritually. To literally, as a Christian, as a brother and sister in Christ, to pray for each other's spiritual growth and maturity. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the first chapter of Philippians when he says in chapter 1, verse 9, And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight. What he's really saying there is, I want your spiritual senses to be so finely tuned that you can decide as a follower of Jesus Christ what is best. Same word. Same word that's used in the book of Hebrews. It's translated better or superior. See what he's saying there? He's saying, I want you in Philippi. I want you Christians there to to continue to grow and mature and have your spiritual senses so finely tuned that you will be always able to recognize, first of all, to recognize what God's best is for you. And then to have the spiritual wherewithal to choose God's best. Because sometimes that's part of the problem too. We know what God's best or better choice is, but we still choose our way. We choose what we want or we choose what the world's offering or we choose what someone else is offering over us. It all comes down to our choice. Not just our recognition of what is best, but our choice of what is best. And see, here's the thing. As I've studied the the Bible, I have found three primary things that rob us of experiencing God's best. First of all, I'll use the word busyness, because that's really common, especially in America today, even amongst Christians. So many Christians are so busy. Busyness does not equate into a better life. Just because one is busy and constantly busy. In fact, many times the Bible says our busyness actually detracts from experiencing God's best. It it removes many times us being able to experience a better life because we are so busy. Think of the story of Mary and Martha. It's not that Martha was doing something bad and Mary was doing something good. Martha was doing something good. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. And you know the rivalry between siblings, between brothers and sisters. Can you imagine how Martha felt whenever Jesus turned to Martha and says to Martha, back off, Martha. Don't give your sister Mary a hard time. She has chosen what is best. Same Greek word that's used in the book of Hebrews and now used here in Philippians chapter 1. She chose what was best. And Jesus commends her for it. 
she was sitting at his feet, listening to him, soaking up that fellowship and that communion time with Jesus Christ. Wasn't that what Martha was doing was bad? So this is the second detractor of the better life. Choosing or settling for the good over what God offers, which is always better. And see, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you, you realize that many times what, what happens is that this choice that you and I have to make isn't like between what's good and bad. God just pretty much hopes that that's a given. God says, here's the problem with most of my people. My people end up settling for something good in their life or getting involved in a lot of good things but there's something better that he has for us. He has his best out here and we can't experience his best because we're so involved in what's good. And God says, but don't you understand that what I'm offering for you is better than that? And that's sort of illustrated also in the story of Mary and Martha is that whole idea. And then the other thing, it sort of, again, weaves itself in through those things. The other detractor of experiencing the better life that God has for us is our impatience. Because many human beings, many Christians even, have settled because they were so impatient. They could not wait for God to bring something to them that was better. And we know that the Bible says patience is actually a fruit of the Spirit. But instead of being patient and waiting for God's best, we circumvent it. We can't wait any longer. And we go out there and we get involved in this or that or this person or that person. And we end up with something less than God's best. You see. Impatience. And so Paul is saying here, Christian, as the author of Hebrews is saying, Christian, my brothers and sisters, I am praying for you. I am praying for you that like the author of Hebrews says, you will continue to move on to maturity. That the things that you will begin to experience are those better things that accompany our salvation. That you won't circumvent the best life, the better things that God has for you because of your impatience, because you're satisfied and you're settling for what's good in your life over what's better in your life. And because you're so busy that you can't even look up long enough to even figure out or be able to recognize and choose what's God's best for me. And we have to do that as a church. Same thing. We have to learn to say, God, what is your best for us? See, as a church, I don't want, as the pastor... I don't want us, like a lot of churches do, and we could end up right there too, where through our history, we start choosing what's maybe good or what's expedient or, or shortcuts or whatever, and then we miss out on God's best for us as a community of believers. That can happen to churches too, just like it can happen to us as individuals. We can get so busy. We can get so impatient. We can be involved in a lot of good things. But are we truly experiencing God's best? Hebrews is the book of better things. And the author wrote this book so that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ would never settle for what's less than God's best in our life. That we would say, God, I don't want just what's good. 
I want what's better. I want what's best. Help me to recognize and choose what is best for me. What is best for us. That's what I want in my life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this challenge from your word this morning. You're truly going to teach us through this letter of Hebrews the better life, what's best. And so, God, I pray today that as we begin to wrap up our time with you corporately today, that you would use these final few moments we have together to maybe solidify some things in our life, to get us to a place, God, where we will be willing to sort of surrender to your best and say, God, I, I am running. I'm running hard. I'm busy, but I'm not experiencing your best for me right now. Or God, I, I got impatient. I ran ahead of you, God, and now I've circumvented it. I, I need to sort of renew myself to come back and start living life on your time rather than my timing. I want to experience, Lord, what's better because of what you've given me. And God, there's so many good things out there that we as Christians can get involved with. And many times that's how the enemy works. He gets us so involved in the so many good things that we're missing out on what's better and what's best. So God, I pray today that as we declare this song of worship to you that we once again affirm that we love you God more than anything else in our lives that God we will also just confirm in our own hearts and minds that we're going to go after God from now on starting today what's best these things we pray in Jesus name amen